Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is financial advisor and co-founder of Heritage Financial Strategies, Shanna Tingem. Thank you for joining me, Shanna. Oh, thanks so much, Amy. I'm excited to be here. I'm always interested to hear how my guests got started in our business. I read your bio actually on your website, and it mentions that after years of struggling to fit into the corporate mold, that you made the decision to become an independent advisor. So let's start there. Share a little bit with our audience on your background and that journey that you talk about on that website. Yeah, for sure. I want to rewind a little bit more though, because it provides some good context. So when I was in high school, I started to kind of get interested in this whole personal finance thing because I watched my mom and dad who are great, um, amazing, salt of the earth, hardworking people from Iowa work at jobs they hated because they had a pension and a paycheck. And I knew I didn't want that, but I didn't know what my options were. So I started doing some research. And of course, this was back in the day before the internet was a thing. And um, that meant reading and um, doing some listening of some radio and, and TV shows and I just didn't know where to go to get questions answered because my folks' parents were depression era. And so their idea of investing was a CD at the bank, which we know today won't get you there. But back in the day, it, it did. And so they really didn't have a context for what investing was. And I started asking them questions and they couldn't answer them. So then um, that led me to reaching out to a local financial advisor. They were called stockbrokers back then um, to ask questions. And so I set up an appointment with him, went into his office. And um, this was, you know, my first year in college, I was working five jobs to put myself through school. And, uh, you know, I drove my jalopy in on fumes, essentially, and went into the office. And I think he was hoping I was going to tell him I'd won the lottery, because he knew me, he knew me from the small town in Iowa, I was from and we sat down. And he said, Shanna, what can I do for you today? And I said, Well, you know, I don't have any money now. I barely have enough gas to get home, but someday I'm going to, and I need some help. Like I need help understanding this. And his reply was, he kind of just looked at me and he set his pin down and he stroked his chin. And then he reached across the desk and he patted me on the head and said, don't worry, sweetheart. Someday your husband will take care of this for you. Ah, right. <laughs> and that was I all the motivation you needed. Pretty much. I actually tried to look him up a few years ago to go back to thank him because that started me sort of on my quest. Um, I was in college to be a secondary music ed teacher. And I thank God every day I didn't go into education because I probably would have flamed out very quickly. Um, but I changed my major to business. And what that meant was I took a job right after high school at a bank as a teller the worst week of my life. I couldn't balance a drawer to save my life. <laughs> and I said, at the end of that week, promote me or fire me, but I can't do this anymore. So they promoted me to a banker. And um, I sort of made my way through banking, selling loans and mortgages and um, checking and savings accounts and all of the banking things. And I was really struggling with it because I was putting people into debt instead of doing what I thought I really wanted to do was, which was to help them on the other side. And the bank that I worked at had this wonderful gentleman with a big name financial planning company that came in every week to make a deposit. And every week he said to me, Shanna, you need to do what I do. And I would look at him and say, no, I don't even know what that is. It scares the hell out of me. 
And, um, you know, every week for about a year. And finally he took me out to lunch and he said, you really need to do what I do. And he went into it a little bit more and I kind of still dismissed it. And it was actually 10 years later that um, I ended up going to work for the company that he worked for. And um, I haven't really looked back since. And it's, it's just been a great ride. That is a great story. Probably I'm a little biased because so much of it is very much like my own. So I have one uh, question for you related to your parents. Um, my dad also was in his mid-70s before he trusted anything but the CDs and savings accounts at the bank, oh, even though yeah. I was in the business. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you become the one that convinced your parents to actually make investments or did they do that before? <laughs> Neither, actually. They were super lucky that they um, have, you know, mom has IPERS, Iowa uh, Public Employees Retirement Pension, and that's really how they're able to live today pretty comfortably. My first couple of weeks in the business, I had a quota to fulfill and I had to sell some stock or bonds. So I sold my parents' general mills as it, as it was. Um, and the first statement came and she kind of freaked out a little bit. And I said, you know what? I'm out. We're selling it. And if you want an advisor, I will refer you to one, but I do not like this relationship. So no, I never did get my parents in the market, Amy. <laughs> I can't blame you. I do the exact same thing. Like we're too busy running businesses and taking care of others that we can't worry about damaging the personal relationship with our parents. Right now, on the other hand, I always used to try to make myself feel better by saying, well, they're not going to sue me and I have to take care of them when they're older anyway. So if I lose all their money, so be it. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, I made that decision pretty quickly that I didn't really want to work with close family or friends because I didn't want Thanksgiving dinner to taste different. You know, I didn't want to be sitting across the table during a market downturn and have to answer those questions. I wanted to just be their friends and family. So it's been a little bit of a harder struggle for me because I made that decision early on, but it absolutely um, was the right one for me. No regrets, it sounds like. So great advice. So you have a niche. You specialize in working with female entrepreneurs, business owners, and individuals experiencing life transitions, including marriage or divorce. What's the approach to serving that unique client base? And are there any surprises or challenges that have come along with it? Yeah, I think my niche has, has you know, um, morphed a little bit since I started with Cambridge about seven years ago. But I would say that the thing that I noticed and part of the reason why women are a huge focus of my firm is because of that story and my story from when I first got, you know, started learning about it. And I think still to this day in, you know, 2022, there are a lot of women that feel treated that way, even if the words aren't as overt, um, they feel discounted, they feel not valued in the in the relationship with their planner, they feel less than in the conversation. And it's just been so important for me to make them feel part of the planning and make them, um, you know, even if they don't want to be included, be included as part of those planning conversations. So there was an article written back in 2014, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal, where it talked about this. It was an insightful article, and you specifically wrote that female entrepreneurs in particular are a group that you thought was underserved by our industry. Do you find that every female entrepreneur that comes in the door is a good fit for you, or have you had to expand that a bit? Are there other criteria that help you figure out if you can help them? 
Well, I also spent a, a bit of time early in my career selling real estate. That was sort of the natural extension of the mortgage uh, business. So I have a, a deep knowledge of the real estate industry. So I get a lot of real estate adjacent um, people, realtors, mortgage loan officers, those types of things. And they're not all a great fit, but they all need education because if you're in the real estate industry, your your focus is real estate. You often think real estate is the best investment and it's a great investment. Don't get me wrong, but it shouldn't be somebody's only investment, especially when you're looking at retirement. And so part of my job and really what I've taken to heart is that they need to be educated on what's out there so that they understand the risk, the reward, and all of the other options that the type of investments that we manage for them have to offer. You talk a lot about education. Are there various ways specifically that you found the most success as you work through that kind of education? You know, certain venues that the delivery of education works better for you than others? For a lot of years, I, I work with a nonprofit that helps women that are considering divorce. That's one of my specialties. I'm a certified divorce financial analyst. And so I help women that are in the process of or considering going through divorce. And those were small group sort of uh, mastermind type meetings. And they included an attorney and somebody in the mental health field. And I really find that those types of sort of round robin discussions work the best. And um, the, what we call gray divorce in, in our industry is just an epidemic right now. And those folks have a lifetime of assets and um, you know different things that they have to untangle. And so uh, that's kind of why that's really been a focus of mine is, to, is just to make sure they get the support that they need. And then I carry that into other types of small group conversations. And we, we do that here at my firm in a number of different ways from having little workshops in our office to going to where the people are to different, you know, events and associations and speaking there really just any, any, but anybody that wants some education. Um, but we prefer kind of the smaller, more intimate venues where we can really get to know the folks that we're talking to and make sure that we're delivering that information that really they're looking for that specific information. Shanna, as a certified divorce financial professional, how did you find the most success in building up that side of your business? Was it seminars? Did you, you know, was it marketing? Did you have to go out and partner with others in the community? I assume there's a lot of trust gathering that has to be done in that environment. Talk about that. That's a great question. And actually, I'm considering getting another professional in my office trained as well, because while it's a super rewarding part of what I do, it's also really, really emotional. And I only take on one divorce case at a time for that reason. I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to handle um, a whole portfolio of them. And so um, when I was building that practice up, it was a lot of small conversations, um, meeting with divorce attorneys, getting them familiar with and to understand our place in the process. Um, and then really... Um, I got pretty lucky in the beginning that I had some pretty nice organic web traffic. And if you search for me and for divorce and financial planning in my general zip code, I, I show up on the front page of Google, which was totally by accident. I wasn't really looking, but, um, but I think that more and more 
people are recognizing that are going through this, that the attorney can't do it all as much as they would want to. They just don't have that level of expertise. And so there, I, I, I just recently spoke with somebody last week whose attorney said, you need a financial professional to be involved in this case. I'll help with the legal stuff, but you need somebody on the, in the financial industry on your side. And that is the first time I've ever had an attorney say, you need this before you hire me, um, which made me feel good for the client and also um, good that we're sort of turning a corner with that type of advice in our industry for sure. Yeah, that is great. I agree. I've seen a lot of them go terribly bad and the planner is usually the one having to pick it up after the fact, but it's after so many things have already been done that haven't been done correctly. So getting you involved early on definitely is a, a positive move. I agree. And what people don't realize in the divorce process is once the divorce decree is final, there are so many things you can't fix if they're done wrong. <laughs> so I would much prefer to be involved before that happens. Yeah, agreed. So you've been a regular contributor to investopedia.com, Kiplinger's personal finance online and borntoinvest.com. What motivates you to contribute to those websites and how have your contributions benefited you and your firm? I'm kind of always, a bit, I've always been a reader. I love, you know, really learning about our industry and reading different articles. And, and that's really what motivates me to kind of contribute. I have some great sources that I've developed, um, you know, in the media over the last three or four years that sort of reach out to me whenever there's a quote financial related topic that they need an answer on. And that really started, uh, if any of you are listening, aren't familiar with Help a Reporter Out, you should be. There's a website you can subscribe to where reporters go and and they throw their requests in and you can answer those and develop those relationships. And, you know, I've really gotten some great feedback from, from those. We have them on our website. We use them in our marketing materials. And I've even gotten a few clients from other states that have read those articles. And I think not only does it help with our credibility as a, you know, a professional that really knows what we're talking about, but it's easy to see what our passion is when, when we can be quoted in an article about, you know, women's women and, and financial planning or, you know, different topics around those things. So uh, we, we try to stay in our lane, of course, but but we love being able to uh, put our uh, best foot forward in that way. You've grown and had so much success since you joined us. Maybe let's take a step backwards. Talk about your team and what you've grown into. What do, what do things look like? And uh, you're not going it alone, are you? <laughs> no, I was when I first came to Cambridge. And one was the loneliest number for about a year. So um, I had my transition all by myself. I did my transition for about nine months on my own. And uh, so any advisor that's uh, getting ready to consider that, I feel you. It's it's um it, it, that was the toughest year of my life, I think. And for a long time, it was me and one or maybe two assistants who were not even full time. Um, they at at one point I had two great assistants that were both part time and did wonderful things for me in my business, and that was really fine with me until the beginning of 2020. And of course, you know, looking back at it now, the whole world started to change when I started to change and think that I wanted to expand my team. But at the beginning of 2020, I kind of knew I needed a marketing role filled um, in, in my firm, somebody to really schedule appointments and, and handle 
outreach because we're Dave Ramsey smart vesters. And so that can get overwhelming. Those contacts can get overwhelming. And I brought on uh, a part, very part-time marketing person who is now full-time with me. And through the pandemic and over the last year, uh, we've grown from a team of two to a team of 13. So I have five other advisors, including myself and the rest are supports, support um, roles. Um, some of my advisors have other hats in my practice, but um, we are absolutely loving it. Uh, we built, a, a, built out a new office last year um, in the middle of a pandemic as well. So now we have a space where we can all be together. We don't always end up in the office at the same time, but it's really shifted my focus from just being an advisor to getting back to running a business, which is something I also love to do. So getting to do something every day that you love is amazing, but getting to do two things you love every day is even more amazing. So I'm super grateful for my team and my staff because they have really just pushed me in ways that we never thought possible. One of those support staff that I brought on is my husband. He now works full-time in our practice. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have always said this, but that's great too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you've made it in a marriage, I think when you can work together. So congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We figured it out, but who boy, did it take some work to get there? I understand. So congratulations. I think knowing your personality as I do, as much success as you were having when you were mostly a solo. I have to believe that it's much more enjoyable for you to be able to bounce ideas and and creatively collaborate with others because of how innovative you are. And speaking of innovation, um, we've got a couple of things to talk about here, in my opinion, around that. You've got your own podcast, which is very exciting. It's called Making Money Fun. And the core message, I believe, is the best way to manage money is to make it fun. So let's talk about that. How do you make managing money fun? Yeah, that's um, something that I've worked really hard to figure out over the last seven years that I've been with Cambridge. One thing I always knew from getting from the early days of getting into this business was that I didn't want to be the typical advisor. I didn't want to be the advisor that you know wore the three-piece suit and had the you know marble floors and walnut plaques on the wall. And I didn't. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I knew that that wasn't me. That wasn't comfortable. And so I really always. Um, focused on making each interaction with my clients enjoyable. I didn't want them to feel like they were going to the dentist. Like, you know, I've heard that from a lot of, of, of clients that have come to me from other advisors. And so I didn't want that experience of people coming in. I wanted them to want to see me and to talk to me. And so I kind of built a practice around having fun with my clients. The events that we plan are mostly fun events. The office environment that we've, that we've built and the culture that we've built is very comfortable there. You don't ever have to feel like, um, you're afraid to ask a question because you're going to feel stupid or we're going to, you know, um, look down on you. We, we just have that open door policy and we want folks to want to come in and see us. And I think that that's been a huge key to our success. Honestly, that's why I've been able to attract the team that I have. Um, we genuinely enjoy hanging out together and working together and bouncing ideas off of each other. And that is apparent to the clients that come in um, and the prospects that come in. They're very clear that we love what we do. We love working with them. We have fun while we're doing it. It's serious business, but also we, we can have fun at the same time. And I think that's been a huge 
um, piece of our success. And also it's one of our core values. So it's going to stick around for a while. That's great. I, a lot of synergy with our culture and core values too, which I think is why I know our associates enjoy working with you. So, and on that note, one of the other, um, well, a couple of other places that you contribute for us and our Cambridge nation innovation is you're involved in a lot of testing on our technology enhancements. In fact, I'm pretty sure rarely have you ever said no to us and we probably overuse you. So thank you very much, but we love, we love that you take it seriously and you do give us candid feedback. What are some of the key takeaways that have helped your firm from a technological perspective in building how you work with your clients? That has been an evolution as well. I think, um, you know, when I started, I came from a big box financial advisory firm where they gave you a package of technology and said, here, make the best of this. And it was, you know, at best 20 years behind where it should have been, but it was what I had to use. And so I made it work. And then I come to Cambridge where flexibility is one of the core values. And I say, well, what do I use for a CRM? Whatever you want. What do I use for financial planning? Whatever you want. And that was hard. That was way harder than I anticipated because then I had to make all the decisions. And so I think in the first couple of years, I evolved from, you know, you know, three different CRMs, three different financial planning softwares, two different phone systems. I mean, I was constantly changing things up. When I started your RPM coaching program, one of the deals I made with my coach was no more technology changes for at least two years. <laughs> So um, I was overwhelming everybody in that, in that process, but I think that there's always a better way to do things. And I'm always one that wants to try to, you know, um, upset the apple cart. I want to try to break stuff if it's not broken. And I think that's been part of what's helped us um, evolve and really customize our communication with our clients. We use a lot of different pieces of technology, some of which are industry specific, some of which are not. And the ones that aren't, we've customized them to make work um, for our firm and the way we do business. And, and I think that that's really helped us um, to just kind of keep ahead of the curveball. When COVID hit, we didn't miss a beat. We immediately shifted to virtual meetings because we've always, we've always been doing virtual meetings, not as many as I did through 2020, but that was always part of our wheelhouse. And so we shifted immediately and we didn't miss a beat on how we could communicate with our clients via text message or email or through our website. And um, I think that that was part of our, you know, drastic growth in 2020 was that there were a lot of advisors that just took too long to figure this out, but we'd already figured it out. We're already there. So it was good. So is there anything that your clients ask for, or I find sometimes even with financial advisors, my conversations with them are interesting as it relates to innovation and, and disruptors, you know, technology from a technology perspective that they don't even really know what they're asking for, but questions start being asked that get us thinking, but anything in particular that you think your clients are looking for that our industry just hasn't quite cracked the code on and we should be thinking about it? Of course, I have a wish list, right? That every time I run into um, somebody, you know, Nick or somebody in technology at Cambridge, I have with me. Um, <laughs> because you never know when you're going to run into something like that. But one of the things that I think, you know, our industry doesn't do a great job at is really sort of, I don't want to use the word aggregating, but that's probably the best word to use all of the different tools that we use. We might use texting and we do tremendously in our firm. We might use e-money for our client vault and 
for um, our financial planning, which we do. We use uh, Click Advisor, and and yet I can't pull my clients' performance reports and tax documents into eMoney. So they have to have a separate login to get to those things. And, and they get overwhelmed with that those logins and then the logins to their 401ks and all of those things. Even though we can pull that data in, it do, we can't pull all of the information in. And so I think the industry needs to do a better job of making it easier and simpler for folks to really just have that one place that they rely on for kind of their true north on their financial situation. Yeah, we, boy, um, I've been in the industry more years than I want to admit, because like you, <laughs> when I started, um, I also didn't get the benefit of using the internet to figure out what I wanted to do. So that tells everybody how old we are. But <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've been asking the overall broader industry for a common data set so that I mean, we can do the work after that. We just need them all to agree on the format that they will use so that we can seamlessly pull it in. And that you're right. That is the Holy grail. Cause that's the answer to giving what I'm hearing you say is, you know, still to this day, clients want and deserve. And I understand every part of their life all in one place. And we still haven't quite cracked that code. That's very, uh, very insightful. You mentioned your practice management coach. I think you're a member of our practice management advisory council here at Cambridge as well. Um, we might as well just start calling you an employee based on all, everything that you're <laughs> involved in for us. So again, thank you very much. But um, on the practice management specifically, what's the biggest takeaway that you have gotten from being a member of that council? Wow. Well, I think that the 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 thing that the being involved in the council and all of the kind of sort of practice management offerings that Cambridge has um, really allowed me to take away is that while there are as many ways to do this business as there are planners that do it, right? Financial professionals, all of us, every single one of us does things a little differently. There are some common themes that we all struggle with and we all struggle with the same things, but at different times. And that's, I think the, the, beauty and the brilliance behind the team of, you know, at, at, with practice management at Cambridge, they've seen all of the roadblocks that we run into at various times with at various um, levels with different financial professionals. And they have the skills and the, and the real true, like down and deep in their soul desire. So to help us to make sure that their offerings match what we're looking for because they know that our job is not easy and they're really focused on making it easier if they can. And so that, that's been a really fun part of being involved in, in that council for sure. It's great. I'm glad. And I know that your input has certainly helped us make sure that we can expand that because of our flexibility and open architecture. As you know, we've gotten so many different financial professionals and business models. So making our practice management programs more broadly applicable to everyone has been very helpful. So thank you for your contributions to that. Oh, no problem. It was great seeing you this year at our Cambridge Community of Women. You were on a panel there as well, success or, or acquisition. Talk about why you're passionate about this topic. So 
I, my husband and I don't have kids. Um, my niece and nephew are very young. They're three and five. And so it, the jury's still out on which one of them will eventually end up coming into the business. Um, but we will be ready to pass the torch on to the next generation far before they're ready to take it over. And so um, I have did not have the desire to wait until I was ready to go or some outside force forced me to, to leave and to, to put this baby and, and, you know, my, my business is my baby on the market and watch it sell to somebody that I wasn't sure was going to take good care of it. So that's part of the reason why I um, ended up growing so much in 2020 was that I put one post out on the Cambridge nation looking for a junior advisor that could potentially be my succession plan. I found him and uh, uh, gratefully um, you're familiar with, with Alden who is now on my team um, it was a great fit and we've, it's been a wonderful, uh, partnership, but our business continued to grow past the point where he could even handle it. So part of my goal in 2022 is to identify out of the five other advisors I have were something to happen to me, which clients would go to which advisor. And part of that's geography, part of that's personality. Part of that is the services that we're providing to them. Um, but over the course of 2022, each one of my clients is going to get in introduced to their what we're calling successor advisor. So if it's 20 years from now when I'm ready to retire or 10 years from now because I have some sort of health challenge, they're going to know that if something happens to me, they're going to be taken care of. And that is part of the fiduciary responsibility I feel to those clients. They need to know that they're going to be taken care of if something happens to me. Even though I mentioned earlier how perhaps we're aging ourselves a bit by talking about when we started, we're, at least in my opinion, we're still actually very young, but it's never too early to start that to your point. And clients ask, uh, right? They, they want to know that they're dealing with an organization and that those other people will be there to take care of them if something happens to you. Yeah, exactly. And I think they ask less today because there are more people around me. They asked a lot when it was just me and I still had a, a, a continuity plan at that point, but now it's really a continuity slash succession plan. And so part of what we're going to be doing over the course of 2022 as well is coming up with how do those advisors who want to be part of my succession earn the right to buy parts of the business over the next 10 to 15 years so that when Shanna fades away, it's a non-issue for those clients and, and, and it's not um, jarring and they don't feel abandoned and all of those things. Um, I just really want it to be a smooth transition when it ever happens. And, you know, I'm grateful for the trust that they placed in me and, and I want to make sure that they're taken care of well after I might be um, exiting this business and, and their kids and their grandkids are taken care of as well. For sure. Now you mentioned geography. Uh, talk about managing multiple locations. How's that? <laughs> how's that working? What have you learned? Uh, what have you learned? Maybe doesn't work. Yeah, well, 2020 changed everything. Um, <laughs> and we probably would be having a much different conversation if, if that hadn't happened. I had just acquired a practice in November of 2019 in Tucson, which is a two hour um, car ride away from Phoenix. And my plan was to be down there for two days every week or two days every other week for the entirety of 2020. Um, and I made that one month and then COVID hit. And we started doing everything virtually. Um, and to this day, most of those clients have preferred to remain virtual. It's just easier for them. Um, and the same thing in Phoenix. I have clients that don't live that far from me, but that have small kids and have preferred to remain virtual. 
So we are in our strategic plan, looking at adding one more physical location where we've built out an office or, or have a full office in the next couple of years and may, may expand in the next 10 years up to four uh, physical locations. But we have what we call meeting locations in Scottsdale, Tucson, and Albuquerque. And those are essentially Regis locations where um, none of us are full-time and our full-time fully functioning offices here in Gilbert. And so it was a challenge for us to figure out what we needed during 2021, which was when we knew we had to expand. Do we go completely virtual? Do we build out an office? And we really just decided we needed to have a home base, even though most days there's not more than three or four people in that office. It has the capacity to hold us all. It has place for us to do our meetings and to do events and all of those things. And so I think all of our priorities really have shifted since 2020. And that certainly was um, not uh, immune to that. So we've drastically changed just how we meet with clients based on their request, but we've got the room to bring people in if that's what they want to do. Seems like that's the recipe for success. When I talk to our advisors, there are certainly advisors who have gone hundred percent virtual or quite honestly, there were even a few that were already 100% virtual for a variety of reasons because of the clientele that they served before COVID. And then there are also still some that absolutely feel this is a face-to-face business and they aren't virtual at all. And they didn't go virtual during uh, COVID. Depending on the state they lived in, they could still figure out ways to socially distance and have their clients come in. But the majority by far are doing something hybrid because like everything else we do, I feel like it needs to be what's most convenient for the client. And so many clients out there, to your point, whether it's their jobs, long hours, long commutes, small children, let me count the ways of um, (laughs) the benefits it saves them of not having to get in the car and come to you. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, throughout the years, I used to be that advisor that would meet evenings and weekends, and I don't anymore. I keep a pretty nine to five schedule. I'm an early bird. So by about seven, eight o'clock at night, I'm pretty much done. And so if, you know, a client of mine has that typical eight to five job, it's been tough. Some of them I've handed off to some of our other advisors that are willing to do later appointments or appointments on the weekends. And when we do a virtual meeting, it could be a lunch hour. They could take a lunch hour and pop on a Zoom call with me and we could get business done and they don't have to take a half day or a full day off to do it. So, you know, it's really, um, the business has changed for sure since I got into the business 10 plus years ago. And certainly since I joined Cambridge almost seven years ago now, it'll be seven years, April 18th that I've been with Cambridge and a lot has even changed in that time frame not only with the industry but just looking back over my own business it's kind of uh boggles the mind i was listening to one of your uh other podcasts a few days ago with Mike Woods who's a good friend of mine and i listened to his story about almost quitting and i have one of those too and my almost quitting story i thought would be uh fun to share with you Amy because it was Ignite that saved me from quitting. <laughs> Yay, um, a side benefit, I guess. Yeah, you did. It was my second year at Cambridge. My first year was brutal because of the transition. And my second year, my husband and I decided to build a new house, which was in hindsight, a really dumb decision. My second year owning a business. 
but we did, we, we bought, um, built a house and moved in. And then a month and a half later closed on our old house the day before he had a horrible bicycling accident. And he was in the hospital for four days and ended up having two surgeries, one of them on his birthday, which really sucked. And I kind of became his caregiver. He really screwed up his wrist, separated his shoulder. And I kind of had to stay home and take care of and my husband who could barely get around all of this while I'm trying to grow my business. And I was just burnt out. I had no intention of going to ignite that year. It was down in Dallas. And at the last minute I booked it. I'm like, I have got to get out of here. Cause if I don't somebody it, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, um, I booked it, came down to Dallas. And while I was there, I'm wandering around going, what am I, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. I've built this business that I hate because I was still at that point managing most of my own money. And that is not why I got into this business, but that's what the old firm that I came from taught me how to do in commissionable accounts, trading all of my own accounts. It was miserable. And I'm taking care of my husband, just moved into this big house. Something's got to give. And I had a couple of drinks in the expo hall that night. And I went out to the lobby and I called my husband and I said, I need out of this business. I can't do this anymore. And he, like the wonderful human being that he is, could sense what was going on in my voice. And he said, you do what you need to do while you're there. When you get home, we'll get you out. I don't know what that looks like, but if you still want to leave when you get home, we'll get you out. And at that moment, I went, okay, I got four days here. I'm going to scrap this list of seminars that about investment management that I had on my agenda. And I'm only going to go to the stuff I want to go to forget all that other stuff. I'm going to see if it's possible to build this business the way I want to build it. And that night in my hotel room, I actually did a resume for the first time in 10 years. Cause I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it ain't going to be this. So I did just that. I went to only the seminars that I wanted to go to. I went to all kinds of really fun, you know, uh, uh, workshops about events and marketing and all of the stuff that is really why I love this business. And, um, on the way home, I wrote my new business plan and I'm like, you know what, if there's a way this business can be done, that doesn't suck the life out of me, this is the company to teach me how to do it. And I thank God every day that I went, cause had I not gone to ignite, I'm not sure I'd still be here today, Amy. So thank you. Well, I love that. I have goosebumps listening. Those are the stories I love some divine intervention somewhere along the way that gives you the answers. And we have a platform. I definitely can't take the credit for it, but that's the beauty of Cambridge as a platform for you to build it your way. And uh, when people actually use it, makes me very happy because I know that we are serving Eric's uh, original vision of making a difference. And thank goodness for that awesome husband of yours. He apparently said exactly what you needed to hear at the at that he moment, did. He, which was he fine. knew better than to, than to tell me that I was crazy. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And he wasn't wrong. And and I'm grateful every day that that I stuck around because we're able and I'm able to make a difference in every one of our clients' lives. And that's why I do this. Oh, thank you for sharing. I love it. So we're nearing the end of my podcast here with you, but I want to talk about hobbies and interests and, and uh, let's go back to, you know, the idea of fun. What do you do outside of work? I'm, a little bird told me you might do some scuba diving. You and I might have that in common as well, <laughs> um, but uh, we do have lives. So tell our, tell our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I don't get to do it as much as I like to because I live in the desert, you know, and so getting to water during the pandemic wasn't as easy as as it should have been. But 
I am an advanced um, certified scuba diver. So um, absolutely love that. Love the opportunity to get in the water whenever I can and, and uh, share that love with, with other people. My husband and I also love to travel. I tend to want to travel to places where there is water, but um, he's trying to get me to venture out and do other things. So we've stuck pretty close to the USA because um, I don't love being away from my business for more than a week to 10 days. And so someday he might break me of that habit as well, but we do absolutely love to travel. My folks live in, in uh, Mesa here in the Eastern suburbs of, of Phoenix, and we enjoy spending time with them. We're both huge Phoenix Suns fans. So um, go Suns and uh, go, go to the games whenever we can as well. So, um, th- so that's really what I do on my time off. I'm a Suns fan too, from way back in the day when I lived in uh, Phoenix for just a brief period of time. And I held on to that. <laughs> that was the Barkley days. I always tend to pick I up know. on their really sexy times. Like, you know, Charles Barkley in that era was fun in basketball. And I'm a Bears fan because back in the eighties, <sighs> they were, you know, the whole Super Bowl shuffle and Jim McMahon. And then I, I'm just so dang loyal. I can't go anywhere I after I find that. <laughs> Well, you had a lot of rough years in the middle between the Barkley days and the current days. Yes. <laughs> and I'm still in those days on the Bears side. So again, loyal person. Nice. Yes, you are. What's your favorite place to travel? Hawaii, Maui specifically. We tend to go there every other year at least. And, and we go there because I can lay on the beach and my husband can ride. He cycles every day when we're there. Um, the West Maui Loop and and all those areas, so he can get his time in and I can get my time in. It's a win win for both of us. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me, Shanna. Sharing your story, you're so inspirational. It's always good for our listeners to know that while it's not easy in our business, it can be fulfilling. And you've spent a lot of time today teaching people to do it in a way that feels good and make a difference. Thank you for having me so much. I love being with Cambridge and I love uh, listening to your podcast and keep up the great work. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. We are Cambridge Stronger.